Hello, this is Angelina Pratt, the host of Empathetic Witness. A little bit of a warning. The conversation you are about to hear may be triggering. It is not our intention to do this. If it occurs, please accept our apology. Okay, so today's podcast is co-host with Stella Desjardins, who is Dene from Northwest Territories and a former CBC broadcaster, and myself, Angelina Pratt, um, Treaty Land Claims Consultant, and formerly from uh, Chair of Nietzsche Indigenous Center for Learning, Board of Governors. Today we will be talking about addictions and we are going to be in a conversation with Len Pierre. So leave it to Stella. Thank you, Angelina. I'm Dene from the Northwest Territories and I I'm very interested in the topic of addictions. It's uh, something that I don't know much about, but I wanted to be involved. And because I understand that uh, it's very important and uh, it can be a difficult topic, I think, for First Nations uh, to, to talk about. So my interest is knowing how addictions has affected the First Nations communities. And our guest today is Len Pierre. He's a wellness coach and consultant from the Ketsi First Nation in British Columbia. And the topic of our podcast today is decolonizing addiction. Len, first of all, how did you get involved in working with addictions? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for having me and inviting me to be a part of this very important um, conversation. Um, I definitely raise my hands to uh, both of you for for having me. Hi, Chika. My story um, and how I got involved with with, uh, substance use and addiction um, came from a position I uh, worked for with the First Nations Health Authority um, in British Columbia. So my background is in education and curriculum design and um, FNHA, First Nations Health Authority had hired me back in April, 2019. Um, And what they had brought me on board to do was to decolonize and indigenize their public health curriculum, um, their uh, clinical curriculum uh, for population and public health, um, which was primarily around the area of um, sexual health and bloodborne infections. Um, But harm reduction was a really big piece of that work as well. And so in April 2016, when I had uh, first signed on to that that kind of work, um, in British Columbia, our public health uh, uh, officer uh, declared a state of emergency for the number of overdoses we were seeing in our province. Um, So that kind of really amped up our work in First Nations Health Authority so we traveled to you know, hundreds of First Nations communities in British Columbia in our very first year of operation, just having very sensitive, very uh, safe conversations about substance use, about addiction, and about overdose. 
And out of all of those experiences, what really happened was is it informed our decolonial curriculum for addiction. Because what we found from traveling and visiting chiefs and counselors and elders and knowledge keepers was that our story about addiction and substance use was quite different than the mainstream population. So that's kind of where my, my, my journey began with having these conversations. You mentioned uh, decolonization for the average person in simple terms. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, for sure. Um, in the most simplest way that I like to explain decolonization is it's really a deconstruction, a dismantling, and a disrupting of colonial and cultural barriers that separate us, suppress us, and often oppress us. So living in um, Canada as a country, Canada is a very colonial country that continues to try to dominate um, minority cultures, um, and more specifically, Indigenous cultures and Indigenous ways of being, Indigenous ways of thinking, and Indigenous ways of doing things. And so quite often, it's almost like this colonial boot that is over our, our way of doing how we like to conduct our own affairs and our own business. So decolonization really is about taking a look at how we do things and disrupting them, dismantling them, and really creating more room for a more traditional way of doing our affairs, a more cultural way of, of doing our affairs. So decolonizing something like addiction really is removing the let's say, clinical or religious, good, bad, binary thought, uh, black and white thinking that we apply towards addiction and really look talking about addiction through a cultural lens, which we would, you know, in, to indigenize it would be, well, we're all on our own healing journey. Mm. Is it, you know, what do you feel when, you know, some people say or they don't recognize they're colonized, mm. so they don't understand like, how am I colonized? You know, like, that's a pretty simple thing. But I hear that all the time where people don't, they don't recognize what it is that they are colonized and they and or even influenced by religion or anything else. Mm -hmm. How do you oh, explain that? Such a good question. And it's such a hard question to address. And it's such a hard question to answer as well. Because colonial ideology is just so deep rooted inside every single one of us as indigenous people because now it has become an intergenerational effect of residential schools and the 60s scoop and land theft and day schools it's just so deeply embedded that it's become really at the end of the day it's become rooted into our belief system so a good example and there's so many examples that we can pick from but an example i will often um come bring about is uh patriarchy and just how patriarchal um a colonial system has influenced our culture but in a very traditional sense you know matriarchy and matrilineal um justice and ways of approaching and ways of being and doing and knowing um, was our way of life but colonization came in and is like patriarchy patriarchy you know the oldest man in the room is the one who's going to be in charge and then mm -hmm. in a very indigenous sense we're like uh no, that does not work for us. Um, and then, of course, you know, when we look at our, our respect and, and love and inclusivity towards our two-spirit folks, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender uh, members of our communities, um, colonialism came in and applied religious and re uh, religion uh, ideology behind that identity and how we were going to mistreat them. 
Um, so mm-hmm. that kind of came in and disrupted our, our belief system too. So they're so deeply ingrained. I like to pick some <laughs> of those um, as examples uh, to answer that question. Yeah, it's pretty complex, isn't it? Because, I mean, when, you, when I think of my own people, the Dene, you know, we've been influenced by religion for so long that even some of our prayers are based on um, like the Catholic religion. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to untangle how we view and separate what is true, our true nature, our true indigenous powers, mm-hmm. and what is actually influenced by religion. Because for myself as a Catholic, for the longest time, you know, I've always said, well, I'm indoctrinated because when you're indoctrinated by something, you can't separate yourself and distinguish what is your true thinking and what is influenced by the church. Mm-hmm. You, you are totally indoctrinated. Like you, you can't separate yourself from that because you're awashed with it yeah. and it becomes who you are. Yeah, right? absolutely. It's such a uh, core piece of our identity. And I find that to be such an interesting topic for when we want to decolonize or indigenize anything. And decolonizing ourselves first, because we can't decolonize anything outside of us, where we have to start with our hearts and minds around decolonizing our identity. And that was the biggest thing I learned when I first started decolonial work in, in 2016 was it was, a, it was a, honestly a grapple with myself, my emotions, my experiences, what I've been taught, um, what I've been trained or groomed into by my elders, my knowledge keepers, my relatives. Um, and it's, it's lifelong um, indigenization and decolonization and really is a lifelong process of coming to terms with what pieces of your indigenous identity are, are impacted uh, by colonization and colonial ideology, for sure. Mm. How do you apply what uh, you've just told us? You know, um, I understand that it's a gift to mm. people, what you're doing what you've undertaken how do you see what you have to offer to first nations communities or other communities that may not understand what what it is uh, we're talking about today Mm -hmm. i would say that probably the greatest gift that i have to be able to contribute to this work and this dialogue uh, at the community level really is a sense of humility Um, And I think that is so essential as a principle for decolonial and indigenization kind of work, um, because you do need to kind of take a step back and just really observe and reflect and ask some really good questions. Um, And I think that uh, also a strength that I bring to this work is just um, having an investment in it. Um, I know that in a time of truth and reconciliation, we want to decolonize many of our systems that, that scaffold this country. Our healthcare system calls for decolonization. Our education system calls for decolonization. Our justice system most definitely needs to be decolonized in some aspects. And so because I have uh, an invested interest in this area, I'm constantly in meetings and gatherings and teaching and learning environments where we are talking about nothing but decolonial approaches to our work. Um, One of my current uh, contracts is as a cultural safety coordinator with uh, one of our healthcare systems in this province. And 
Um, part of that work is making our, our healthcare system uh, more culturally safe for indigenous folks. And it's funny because it's, it's a system that, you know, is colonial designed and not really, you know, creates a lot of safe spaces for us as indigenous peoples. So I almost practice what I preach in, in how I do my own professional practice in this regard too. Um, so it's finding a balance between keeping that conversation and learning going and upholding that cultural humility and that almost like that professional humility too, because, you know, when we kind of come up through our education and training to be the professions that we, we are trained in calls for a degree of ego and a degree mm. of, you know, having the utmost knowledge. And it's hard to advance decolonization work when we're trained to uh, compete with one another um, and outsmart one another. Um, so I, I think that cultural humility regarding uh, decolonization work is, is the most essential. It sounds more like a collective approach because I think that when you're, when you, as you said, you know, the whole idea of competing with each other, you know, one-upmanship, that's an individual approach. But mm -hmm. I think if you, you turn your perspective around and look at it as a collective endeavor, then you're you're actually looking at the whole people as a whole as a group as an entity mm -hmm. and then and bringing forward those skills and having them recognize in themselves where in their life they can make these changes mm -hmm. and as they do the individual changes collectively as a group they'll be changed mm -hmm. right oh, i mean it's a, it's a it's a slower approach, but it's actually one that will work because as you change yourself, because you can't change everybody yeah. and dismantling the system takes a lot. But if you go individually and each person can adapt those changes within their own life and their own family, mm -hmm. it will spread out to the community. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think you're hitting the nail on the head when it comes to culture transformation. Um, and it does. You're so right, because it does begin with every single one of us practicing, practicing that. I always say it's, it's a practice. It's not perfection. It's a journey, not a destination. And only because I've been in this work for a number of years now, um, and I'm comfortable enough to introduce this idea and this practice in, in my family set setting and in my friendship setting. And now I'm introducing it at, at a community kind of setting because it's not so much the different ideas, it's the different values that really drive decolonization work and indigenization work. Um, and what you were mentioning, Angelina, is, um, you know, it's uh, cooperation over that competitiveness. And that's part of decolonizing addiction, too, is that so much of addiction and the way we treat addiction in our community is the onus is on that one person, the one who mm -hmm. is in active substance use. But in a very traditional sense, when did we ostracize people for being different or for being on their healing journeys? We never did that because we were mm -hmm. tribal systems. We said the wellness of the one is the wellness of the entire community. That's tribalism. And so we want to restore that through indigenizing, um, caring for one another by making sure that we're operating on the whole community and the whole family um, is supporting one another. In your work, Lynn, you say that... Um you know, you, you work a lot with uh, communities. So when we talk about drug and alcohol abuse uh, in First Nations communities, 
what are people telling you right now? Where are they at um, in, in terms of, you know, they recognize uh, the need for, for healing, for example? Mm-hmm. What are you hearing? What, what are the immediate things that people are telling you? I think for me, one of the things that, you know, comes up when I'm sitting in, in rooms with, you know, moms and dads and aunties and uncles and grandmas and grandpas talking about caring for family members who are in active substance use or active addiction, um, what they're really telling me that is the most pressing is that there's so much shame with being known as a person who is using substances. So, and that shame really is speaking to uh, community-wide stigmas associated with substance use. So that makes it really hard for communities to talk about accessing treatment or accessing harm reduction services like take-home naloxone or um, substitution therapy, uh, moderation therapy, because there's just so much fear and shame around being outed as a person who is using substances. Because quite often, you know, we think when we put addiction on the table or substance use on the table for discussion, we think we know who everybody is who is actively using substances. But one thing the overdose crisis has taught us is that, you know, people have lost their lives um, due to drug overdose and the entire community and family members did not know that that person was even using um, illegal substances that were on the market. So what that's telling us is that there's a huge hidden population in our own communities as well who are using substances recreationally or medicinally or maybe within addiction and are also still losing their lives um, as well. So I would say that um, shame and barriers to accessing healing services are probably the number one conversations we are having at the family and community level. And so what that tells me is that we actively need to start talking about stigma associated with using drugs as one of the major priority areas for um, substance use programming at the community level. Mm. Absolutely. Why is it that people feel like even in their more intimate family setting, that shame, like what is it? Because your family is supposed to, you know, be open and accepting of you. Mm -hmm. If you know, like most, like they should be accepting so why is the shame still preventing people from, from talking about it? Like, what is it that, that creates that feeling? Mm-hmm. I think that it is a, and, and I think that, you know, over the stories and, and talking about this at, with so many different community leaders and knowledge keepers and community members, is that the shame really kind of comes from this deep-rooted belief that we have inherited from the residential schools legacy, that if you are doing drugs, you are uh, thought of to be a bad person, um, somebody who is, you know, um, destroying their body, uh, so to speak. And so that subtle belief um, really is in all the different communications that we have with our families. Um, I remember growing up, um, sitting at, you know, the dinner table with my entire family and when somebody was known 
because you know we gossip at our family dinner tables too (laughs) (laughs) you know for that gossip you know somebody would be become known to be actively using substances or uh, may have experienced an overdose and I remember my parents saying like oh that person's a bad person and if you do drugs you're a bad person so it's like it's reinforced not just by you know our parents but it's also reinforced by the television and news media um popular documentary shows like intervention um Mm. so we have this what i call social conditioning um or socialization um in a developed country that we're constantly being pumped with information that is um inaccurate um Mm. and not accurate to you know a very healthcare or a wellness oriented type of lens or approach or way of a wellness uh, perspective on the matter so we have so much stigma that is just constantly reinforced into our brains that it, 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 for people who are actively using substances, it's like, okay, well, it's just not even good. It's not a good idea to come forward and say, I am using substances or I'm in a relationship with addiction. Can you expand on what you said about uh, information? You mentioned media. Mm-hmm. Give us an example of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So the media is really good at um, portraying misinformation because we all know that fear really drives a lot of our news coverage and our news stories. And so the media um, for a long time has really just represented and painted um, substance use and the substance use community with this really bad brush of just... um, really ugly things that weren't inaccurate to science, the science behind it all. So, and a good example of this was a social media post came out of the United States, I believe. And the United States has been in an overdose crisis for many, many years now. And it's only becoming more and more uh, kind of like a wildfire uh, situation down there, just as much as it is in British Columbia, especially during COVID days. Um, But when that overdose crisis was first declared, there was this really awful image that was being circulated on Facebook. And I remember seeing it. Um, It was uh, an image of two parents who had overdosed on opioids in the front seats of a minivan. And in the back seat of that van was a toddler who was strapped into their their seat. And so it was just such a a striking um, image. And it really just judged and shamed anybody who was using substances and is um, really shaming anybody who out there who might look at that and come across that image and just showing how irresponsible that those parents were. So what that does and what the implications of that social media posts and media news coverage, coverage stories like that is stigma, social stigma for substance use goes through the roof. And then all the community chatter at that time becomes about how evil Uh, substance use is and how evil people who are using substances really is so number so what happens after that nobody talks about their substance use nobody wants to go into a clinic or to a healthcare, uh like a health center and ask for treatment because they don't want to be outed as one of those evil people so the people the the community members who are actively using substances their stigma goes up so much that it just becomes not a safe conversation anywhere in our society to have those life-saving conversations so they don't feel safe uh, in their own communities um, as well you know when when they're battling with something that is so big so huge that's been around for 
many, many years. And one of the things that we hear about is trauma. They mm-hmm. say trauma leads to addiction. Mm-hmm. What are your views on that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think that the the research and the literature out there highly suggests that that trauma is a driving force for substance use and addiction. And this, I, I often teach this at the university in the clinical setting as well. You know, there we as Indigenous people know um, that we are overrepresented in substance use and addiction. Um, and it's easy to understand, you know, where our collective trauma comes from because of the colonial traumas that we have endured, uh, the colonial events that we've endured uh, over the last couple of centuries. Um, everything from, you know, being uh, decimated by smallpox to residential schools, Indian hospitals, land theft, um, the 60 scoop, and um, being forcibly removed uh, from our families and communities and put into the foster care system, even today, you know, those are all traumatic events that drive and reinforce trauma, grief, loss, and drivers and contributors to a sense of daily stress. And when we talk to people who uh, have a living experience or lived experience, people, people tell us that they used uh, substances to help cope with their traumas, to help cope with uh, the daily stress of, of um, not having access to um, some basic human rights and, and services that kind of go along with that. Um, so part of decolonizing addiction really is understanding where addiction comes from within an Indigenous context. And it almost becomes inarguable in that regard, um, where, our, where our story about addiction originated from. And it comes from colonialism. So that's why we felt the need to uh, address colonization as one of the root causes of addiction for Indigenous peoples in this country. Not all addiction is... Um created by trauma. Can you just um, explain that, that it's not always trauma that leads to addiction? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And there's also uh, research and and science out there that says, you know, even if we lived in a utopic society, if we lived in a perfect world, do we think that there would ever be addiction? And the, the science and research shows that there would still be addiction. Roughly 3% of the world's population would still be in some kind of active addiction. Um, and it's easy just to think about, you know, what we use addiction for. Um, we use addiction to feel good about something bad that we're kind of coming from or experiencing. And quite often when we put addiction on the table for conversation, our mind goes first and foremost to drugs and alcohol is probably a really close second. Um, but then we like to brainstorm at the community level and with our families, um, what are those socially acceptable forms of addiction or hidden addiction that you can't necessarily see if it's staring you in the face. And people will say things like, well, work, work can become addicting, but we don't talk about work as, as a problematic source of addiction. Um, gambling, uh, going to the casino or, you know, we have community members that love to go to bingo and the casino, right? And <laughs> so, you know, not all addiction will necessarily come from traumatic roots, um, but it will come from and probably have an origin of just stress management and coping skills. So again, just falling onto that we use addiction um, to feel good about something relatively bad. 
And an example of that might be, you know, if we're in a separation or, you know, we've lost uh, a relative, sometimes we dive into our work. And so that becomes, you know, if we, if I, if somebody gets a divorce, sometimes it's not necessarily safe to go home or uh, feel, feel good to go home. So they'll dive right into work and work beyond their nine to five hours and work 12 to 14 hour days as a source of addiction to feel good about that bad event that they've experienced. Yeah. Um, I heard in your talk, your TED talk, you mentioned um, that prohibition is not um, an answer to eliminating addiction. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of thinking with respect to harm reduction, which is, you know, a way to mitigate the addiction and, and to actually protect the, the user. How is, how is that um, relate to, to um, prohibition, like stopping, you know, like, so you're not advocating that somebody stop completely because that, that creates a health issue. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on harm reduction? Mm-hmm. Um, I am all for harm reduction um, because, you know, for too long we have at, in the indigenous context, only talked about substance use within that good bad binary and abstinence only programming uh just say no don't do it just quit and that comes from the residential schools as well because we can't argue that because religion is all about abstinence only just say no don't do it just quit and Mm -hmm. we know we know that does not work for all of our indigenous community members we know that doesn't work for all of our relatives who are in active substance use or active addiction so if it doesn't work for everybody, what is the next best thing? Well, if we implement and invest our time and energy and resources into harm reduction programming, there are so many more steps that can support people on their healing journey. Uh, Things like education, uh, outreach, developing uh, relationships, uh, providing uh, education about safer uh, safer using, um, substitution therapy, uh, moderation therapy, all those things that can really help improve the quality of, of people's lives. Um, the relationship between harm reduction and prohibition really is about prioritizing where our resources go to. So mm-hmm. in that TED talk, I mentioned that we waste millions and millions and millions of dollars a year on the war on drugs here in this country. Um, and really it does more harm than it does good. Um, because when we criminalize people who are using substances and we put all this wasted time and energy into it, we just further stigmatize uh, substance use and substance use goes underground. And if it goes underground, we can't talk about it. And if we can't talk about it, we can't exchange life-saving information like reversing overdoses, substitution therapy, and all the other harm reduction things that we want to talk about to improve people's well-being. Um, But if we ended the war on drugs in this country, if we ended prohibition in Canada, we would decriminalize all people who are using substances so that we would destigmatize substance use. But then we would put all those millions of dollars into other areas of substance use programming, like treatment, prevention, and Mm -hmm. harm reduction, which would improve quality of life for our population from coast to coast to coast um, tenfold, probably. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. I haven't sat on the um, Nietzsche Board of Governors, which mm-hmm. is an indigenous institution that teaches 
um, and trains counselors dealing with addictions. Mm. One of the driving force on the board was abstinence. Like even to be a board member, you had to agree and disclose that you are um, a sober person and you don't take any, even at one point we had a discussion about prescription drugs. Mm. And so that was, you know, you know, that had to be, uh, there was a discussion about, you know, should we allow somebody that is on prescription drugs on the board, you know, and when we're hiring people in the institution, we would often, you know, ask that they be, they have abstinence. And so, and I couldn't, I mean, I didn't know enough about about um, addictions in terms of um, abstinence and uh, harm reduction, but I instinctively thought that harm reduction seemed to be a model that should be followed because it made sense to me that if if people were to stop cold turkey, they mm-hmm. risk their health. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, the next best thing to do is to have moderation and and a, a scale of harm reduction. Mm-hmm. But for the longest time, and I think even to this day, Nietzsche requires, you know, board of governors, employees to all abstain from, from drugs and alcohol to be part. And I think you're right. I mean, that is a focus that is the wrong place to focus it. Mm-hmm. Because Nietzsche has been in existence over 45 years. Mm. And the issues of drugs and alcohol in the communities is still there. Mm-hmm. You know, that was there 45 years ago. It still exists. Yeah. In fact, it's worse. But, you know, so so how do we move to the next phase? Mm-hmm. You know what? You are so right, too. And that's quite often, you know, after being involved in this work for so many years, um, there are still so many models like that, that, uh, that value for abstinence-based programming and messaging. And I think at the end of the day, I really like to commend uh, leaders and decision makers in our communities because I think they're all driven by really well well intentions. But at the end of the day, it has more of a harmful effect than it does uh, a harm reduction effect, uh, which is more inclusive and, and wellness oriented. Abstinence, you know, doesn't leave a lot of room for all of our community members. I always go like this. I, I make my hands that I say, this is, if we're talking and putting all our efforts into abstinence programming, it's like the circles this big, which is like mm. a toonie probably. But if we take yeah. a work of harm reduction, we grow that circle to be much more inclusive and encompassing of some of our folks that need access to healing services. Um, so it's not like um, abstinence is bad and harm reduction is good. Um, it's that harm reduction or abstinence can exist in harm reduction messaging and talks and conversations and programs. We're talking about, you know, um, stigma and uh, how what's in place right now to help people with addictions. But just to take that down to uh, a personal level, to the addict, how how should people relate to them as, as one human being to another? Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly it. We kind of talk about people who are in active substance use as an other, another person. Um, And that's colonial talk 
um, as well, as we, we like to talk about uh, the othering of people so that we protect our own selves. But if we just practice our own humility as human beings, which is also a value in our culture, our Indigenous cultures across Turtle Island is that humility piece and respect for the individual, no matter where you're coming from. To me, that's how I kind of look at it, encourage our folks to think about it. It's not the othering of people. It's how do we draw a circle around them and include them in our, in our, in our lives, in our programs, in our services, or in our professional practices. Um, so it's looking at people who are actively using substances, not as a bad person, that good, bad binary that we've been taught from religion and residential school, but it's looking at them in their substance use as a reflection and where they are showing you where they are at on their own healing journey, given colonization. And we're all on our own healing journey. I mean, none of us as Indigenous people are untouched by colonialism in this country. And we all have different ways of going about our healing journey. I need to pray, I need to meditate, and I need to talk. And I, I go to counseling <laughs> to talk about how colonization has impacted my personal life. And so when I'm working with or talking or teaching about substance use within, with, for, for, for sanctions and Indigenous people, I say it's not talking about the good and bad of substance use. It's talking about where that person's at in their own healing. How does this relate to intergenerational impacts? You know, we talk about uh, residential school survivors. We talk about the church's role in, you know, First Nations communities. So how does one understand, really, unless they're in that community? And, and I'm out, you know, talking about outsiders looking in and how First Nations are dealing with this. Mm. Um, it's, it, that's a hard one to kind of um, navigate. Um, in our province of British Columbia, um, a lot of when we start introducing the idea of decolonizing substance use and indigenizing harm reduction, that approach has really created a lot more autonomy for community uh, systemic transformation and the way that they are actively responding to the overdose crisis in our province. Uh, so we've had First Nation communities that have been 100% abstinent uh, for many, many decades. And then a new chief will come in, be elected in, and change the tone of that conversation in that community and implement harm reduction across the board. And that change drastically changes the minds and attitudes and feelings and emotions of everybody in that community. And what happened is in the abstinent model, um, there was a lot of overdose um, deaths and mm -hmm. events that were happening in that community. But then when harm reduction was introduced and being led at the community leadership level, um, it drastically changed and reduced our overdose uh, overdoses that we were seeing in that community. And then what actually happened was uh, people were accessing treatment a lot more because it all of a sudden became safe to go into yeah. the health center and ask the nurse or ask the doctor about accessing harm, uh, accessing harm reduction and also accessing treatment. So transformation kind of ebbs and flows in this, in this day and age, because I think that, you know, each and every one of us are on our own learning journey as well for decolonizing our work, decolonizing our principles, and decolonizing our approaches to how we want to be as a human being in this life. So it kind of ebbs and flows. And that's why I always say it's a practice, not perfection. 
And if it ebbs and flows for us personally, it's definitely going to ebb and flow for communities and organizations. Because sometimes you just have one key influencer who will kind of come into the community and Mm. then a lot of the harm reduction efforts can kind of be decimated if they're pro-abstinence and anti-harm reduction. Um, But some of those success stories um, where transformation has happened really quickly have really been upheld and celebrated by external community members, non-Indigenous communities looking in and saying, Mm. asking chiefs and nurses and health directors in those communities, how did you change How did you implement uh, getting an overdose uh, prevention site on your First Nations reserve? That's really hard to do because that needs to go through a whole community-wide approval process to get that. But Mm. And municipalities are looking at some of our uh, First Nations reservations and saying, I think we have a thing or two we can learn from the Indigenous community. And I have talked decolonizing addiction and Indigenous harm reduction principles practices in clinical settings um, with with nurses and physicians, but also in post-secondary institutions uh, with student physicians. And they have said that we have so much to gain and learn from Indigenous worldviews, things that are more holistic, inclusive, based on self-determination, based on connection and access to culture and identity. Um, mm-hmm. And in that regard, you know, Canada has so many areas where they can learn from us if they just listen <laughs> and show up. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, in the in the community I'm from in northern Alberta, I remember growing up we had a uh, a dry reserve. I mean, mm-hmm. we're not I mean, Fort Chippewan is not really a reserve as as it's identified. It's actually a hamlet, a community. So there's indigenous peoples, Cree, Dene, and Metis, and also non-native. Mm. And it was a dry community, but there was a whole lot of booze in the community because, mm-hmm. you know, people were bootlegging, making homebrew and doing that. Yeah. Um, just a question on, on decolonizing uh, addictions. What are the individual steps a person can do to start their own decolonization, you know, something simple they can work on, you know, when they hear the podcast? Mm, that's a really good question. I really think that some of the first steps would be to maybe examine or investigate some colonial ideas and structures that are quite dominant in our communities. Um, so religion is, is a very uh, important one. Um, it's a classic uh, uh, starting point because there is, you know, religious ideology that exists in a lot of our Indigenous systems today. Um, yeah. So, And that's controversial, too, because we do have Indigenous folks who are practicing Christians or practicing Catholics um, and, and, and pride themselves in, in doing that. Um, but we do need to have that resiliency in ourselves to take a look at our history and find out where some of those colonial ideas exist in our modern day indigenous belief system. Because this is really emerging work for us uh, here in this country, um, I would say that some good starting points for learning more about decolonization uh, and what you can do personally is to really start to um, do your research. Um, so look at TED Talks, look at journal articles, um, news articles, infographics, 
movies, uh, documentaries that are out there about decolonization for Indigenous peoples in this country. Um, because how, how decolonization work is going to look for me is going to look a lot different than yourself or, you know, it's going to look different for where our Indigenous identity um, comes yes. from. So it's really personal. Um, it's a journey inward, uh, first and foremost. Uh, and that journey inward might involve talking about some of the traumatic pieces of our own histories uh, from you and the, the family that you kind of come from. And just asking yourself in an open-minded and open-hearted way, what did I learn that might be drastically influenced by colonial ideology more than a traditional or a cultural sense? Yeah, yeah, I think those are good starting points. Yeah, so it's basically, so at an individual level, somebody listening to the podcast, they need to, you know, they need to look at, you know, like, religion and how that impacts their thinking now in their community, look at other um, institutions and how that impacts the way they think, and maybe, you know, expand that to looking at doing some personal research, look at, you know, watch some documentaries. And with that, maybe I can request that if you can send me some links of some specific documentaries or resources we can and we can put into our our notes show notes and people that are interested in following through with that they can identify and and get access to that information Mm -hmm. absolutely um i can do that um i'd also say even more to make it a little bit more personal too i would invite i would invite folks to start just getting used to saying the word decolonization or decolonial work because that invites language is this funny thing that constructs our thoughts that constructs our ideas that shape out our beliefs and our beliefs inform how we treat people so i always invite people not just indigenous people all people to start using decolonization and decolonial um as as new words in their vocabulary bank that we need to every single day um so i use them with my partner i use them with my daughter i use them at work i use them in school um, and people appreciate it. And that kind of yeah. helps the, the ripple effect of us to continue our own learning. Secondly, I would also get folks to check in with their value system because uh, our values really drive our, our decisions and our ideas and our thoughts as well. And if you look at colonial values, it's, a, it's in stark contrast from indigenous values. So an example would be a colonial value would be science and an indigenous value would be spirituality. A colonial value would be uh, literature. Uh, Indigenous would be orality. Um, Colonial ideology would be, you know, uh, a value system on uh, the nuclear family, where in our sense, it's more of a community of families. And then, like, there's so many ways that our value systems are just so different and unique. And sometimes it's just highlighting those two and always leading and tapping into your Indigenous value system. Oh, that's excellent. Because I never really thought of that in terms of, um, you know, looking at the distinction. Mm-hmm. And, and I've always thought about language because language, you know, used in a certain context. And you need to know what the context is that you're using that particular language. Mm-hmm. And it can really be like a light bulb opening up, you know, because mm-hmm. I, when I look at some, some of the indigenous Dene words, 
and I and I actually, you know, translate it literally. Mm-hmm. It it kind of makes me laugh because, for example, we say you know for um, horse in Dene is lincho, so it just means big dog, because they <laughs> never had horses before. <laughs> yeah. So it's just this big dog, you know. So yeah. they just yeah. So that's how they described it, and when they described um, RCMP, um, they would call them. I don't know if they do that for you, Stella, but in our area, we called it banla, which just means buttons because of the buttons on their uniform. Mm. So the RCMP were buttons. It's probably a better name for them. I don't know. Stella, is what? how do they say RCMP in your area? Well, this, like you refer to buttons, yeah. but uh, the other term from up north, I, I'm not sure about, you know, Saskatchewan and other places where uh, Dene is spoken, but uh, which is basically this person of everything, literal yeah. kind. That knows everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that knows it, everything. But yeah. uh, just going back to languages, which is really interesting when you talk about uh, decolonization, mm-hmm. just to translate that word. You think about, you know, the many languages uh, throughout the country. Mm-hmm. So when you start talking about decolonization, uh, interpretation, you know, has a big part in there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, even that, like like defining the RCMP or police as people that know everything. Like, <laughs> that's kind of like, weird right you know yeah. like that they thought they knew everything yeah. <laughs> like or they investigate or whatever but it's underscore decolonization there yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah so it's it's you know i look at language a lot i look at how people speak and language really does um and that's why it was interesting for me when I initially did the demo podcast for Empathetic Witness. I had to be careful about what I said because words do mean something to people and they're tied into their experience. Mm-hmm. And so I I didn't really comprehend that what I said would actually be... Um, traumatic to somebody language use um that's a major part of decolonizing addiction and substance use uh, as well because for so long and we've applied you know non-indigenous ways of looking and supporting people on their healing journeys um and so quite often you know a big part of decolonizing substance use is changing the way we talk about people who are actively using substances because, you know, it, it breaks my heart when I'm in community and people say, oh, my relative's an addict or my relative's a user. Mm. Uh, and that's really stigmatizing language. And it's also mm. colonial language. And it's mm-hmm. pathologizing uh, language that dehumanizes that, that person. Um, and it, that shapes our attitudes and minds and how we're going to treat that person too as, as probably being lesser, which is everything colonial values. Um, yeah. So within an indigenous worldview, it's, you know, safer. So instead of saying addict and junkie and user, we invite people to say, 
people, people first language. So people who use substances, people who use drugs, people with living mm-hmm. experience, people who smoke and people who drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, there's another one too that I like to try and nip in the butt is, you know, people use the term clean when they're abstinent. Like, oh, like my relatives oh, been yeah. clean and sober for, for 10 years. But what does yeah. that apply to somebody who's still actively using substances? That they're dirty. And we don't yeah. want to use that language either because again, it's stigmatizing. Um, so yes. we say people on their healing journey. Yes, no, that is, you are so right. I remember years and years ago when I was probably freshman in university, I was talking to my professor um, who was teaching indigenous studies and I had to do a paper and I did a paper on trappers on my father as a trapper. Mm. And so we were talking about my paper and I said, well, you know, my parents are illiterate. And she looked at me and she said, don't say that. They just, you know, maybe they can't read English mm. or they can't write that, but they're not illiterate. Mm-hmm. Your people are really strong people. And by using that terminology, you're making them less than, mm. you know, because you're in university, you yeah. know, right? Yeah. So it, it and it also shows that you're ashamed of them yeah. by saying that, you know? And so that always stuck in my head when she said that. And, and then after, you know, I started doing some research on my genealogy, I actually found that my great-grandmother spoke and wrote French. Mm. And I never knew that, mm-hmm. you know? But yeah. it just kind of shows you, you know, you have this really small point of view, right? And I think when you talk about Indigenous worldview, mm-hmm. I see that as an expansive, yes. too, you know, it's a, an uh, inclusive. Mm-hmm. So it opens it up. And my point of view as a freshman in university was really narrow for me to say to a professor that my parents were, you know, um, didn't read or write, and I referred to them as as what I did, you know, so it's really, you know, like it, it's a different point of view. Yes. And it's an expansive and all inclusive point of view. And I like to think of it that way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we're talking about putting labels on people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just listening to Angelina say that, you know, um, we're ashamed like, for example, uh, Len, you said, you know, in, in a community, um, a person will say, oh, my relative is either an addict or a junkie or whatever, and they're ostracized by their own communities. But then yeah. this whole question of labeling, mm-hmm. would you say that's a form of uh, protecting ourselves, like, against them as others? Yes, Absolutely. Again, it's that reinforced othering of people that is also colonial ideology, right? We love and and Canadian socialization and colonization reinforces that in us as as we're kind of coming up in this country. And we find this also in mental health um, when people are, are, you know, called upon by their diagnosis over than a person who has um, these kinds of these things, right? Um, so we, and this is something I talk about in health, the healthcare setting, setting all the time, is we overly pathologize people 
Um, but it is also at the community level, I see that as defense mechanism to, to other, other people because that's, you know, the whole um, system of competition versus a system of, of cooperation, which is part of the decolonial work. Yes. Well, that, this is really a fascinating conversation, and I think we could go on and on forever. Yeah. <laughs> and we've, we're just touching the surface right now, just, yeah. just the surface. Yeah, and, I always say that, you know, substance use can be its own master's degree in just understanding and, and having these kinds of conversations. And the yes. same for decolonization. You can probably, you know, that's like a PhD investment to get your doctoral in, in these kinds of conversations yes. and ways of knowing and being. Yeah. Uh, but absolutely, we're uh, <laughs> just scratching yes. the surface. Yeah, and, you know, what, what I'm really interested in, uh, to hear from you, Len, is, you know, the, the work that takes you, you know, to, to communities and, uh, you know, you work with uh, non-Native people as well. Um, what do you find, um, do you have to try to explain all the time what message you're trying to get across? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I think that for both substance use and decolonizing substance use, they are, it's, very, it's a very loaded conversation. I mean, just like how our conversation, we've covered so many different topic areas under the umbrella of colonization and substance use, that often there are times with Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people that, you know, they get hung up on one idea probably about 15 minutes ago in the conversation. And then so it'll come up again as a question like, oh, what did you mean when you said it like this? because I find decolonial work and substance use work to kind of be almost subjective and mm. it doesn't have so much form or shape. So it's really hard for us to digest. We need the time and we need the repetition to kind of have these conversations as an ongoing. That's why I always say it's a practice, not perfection, uh, because mm. we can't hear it just once and understand it and then apply it. So there's often times in community dialogue where I'm constantly having to reinforce some ideas or reinforce some learning objectives, um, like language use. Um, And an example I have is, uh, I used to say something like, when it comes to substance use at the community level, you know, we're all in this together. And I kept saying that for like a two hour um, training that I was doing in a community. And one of the matriarchs in that community was like, you keep saying we're all in this together. I don't feel like I'm I'm abstinent. How am I in this together, right? And so yeah. the medicine wheel, I drew the four different relationships we can have with substances. We can be abstinent. We can have a medicinal uh, relationship, meaning that we use it for medicine. We can be in a recreational relationship with substances, meaning that we only use um, our substances of choice uh, recreationally, like during weekends or celebrations. And then the fourth quadrant would be um, we can um, have an addiction with substance use. And I put that all into a medicine wheel. And then I said, you know, you may be abstinent, but it doesn't mean that you don't have loved ones who you love and care for that can be in either one of the other quadrants. And she was like, like smacked her forehead. She's like, okay, I got it. That's why I say like, because again, it's decolonizing just that it's just the one individual. I'm like, no, no, no. That one individual has a mom, has a dad, has brothers and sisters, friends, children, maybe. And so this dialogue needs to keep happening. We need to keep having as we're all in this together. And we're all interconnected, right? So the work that we do yeah. here in this province is going to have a, a relationship and exchange and, uh, with, with um, our relatives on the other side of Turtle Island. And mm-hmm. so, um, and then I would leave that conversation and somebody else would say, 
can we go back to the medicine wheel <laughs> example? <laughs> yeah. um, because it is, it's such new learning. It's such fresh learning for a lot of us that uh, yeah. we kind of want to stay, keep the conversation in one area. Yeah. Yeah. What, kind of, what are the barriers though? What are the barriers uh, that First Nations uh, communities are experiencing today as, as you've seen through your work yeah. to when they, you know, start to work on healing? Mm-hmm. I would say the biggest barrier is probably um, policies that are in place that are abstinence only. Um, our policies and our rules really kind of shape the culture of community. So if we have a health center uh, administration staff and we have chief and council that are very pro-abstinence only, it's not going to leave a lot of room or um, attitudes that are welcoming of harm reduction work and even just talking about substance use. So community policies really do drive and reinforce um, decolonizing substance use and to invite people to uh, join, start their healing journey um, by accessing harm reduction. I would also see, say that um, unacknowledged trauma um, is a, a major barrier. So if we don't all start talking about our historical traumas and our existing traumas today, we can't make that relationship between our traumas and active substance use and active addiction. So I think normalizing our community conversations to say like, you know what, we are all touched by trauma in some way. We need to stop shaming ourselves and having a traumatic past. We don't need to broadcast them to the world, but we do need to start encouraging our future generations to start working on them um, because that's prevention in itself is, is if we think, you know, drug prevention uh, for youth, is going to come with education. Um, we know that doesn't work because I've been a part of those education things and seen a whole bunch of people in my peer group, you know, go through their, their experimentation with drugs. It's internalizing our traumatic experiences and talking about them and healing, uh, doing our healing work that's uh, a major barrier to just having great conversations about substance use. Um, because if we don't acknowledge those traumas, we're so stigmatizing our own uh, beliefs and further stigmatizing the people that we love and care about in our communities as well. So policies and then our internal uh, acknowledgement of our own traumas. And I think the relationship between policy at a national level and a, another national level for the nations, First Nations communities um, is that, you know, there's the big policy, which is the war on drugs. We really need to decriminalize people who use substances at the federal level. And then at the First Nations government level, you know, we really just need to remove our zero tolerance policies for people who are in active substance use from accessing our cultural services. Um, because there are zero tolerance policies about people not allowed being in the health center if they're under the influence of, of substances. But does that mean just because they're under the influence that they can't access healing services that are provided by the community? And so that's kind of where the relationship, it's like, it's a microcosm, right? Our, yeah, yeah. We take that on as First Nations people. We're taking up that war on our own, on drugs, which is really just yeah. taking up a war on our own people. Yes, yeah. And people have been um, removed from the communities. Like in, if you look at north, uh, the south of Alberta in the Blackfoot country, they expelled a lot of people because of drugs like they just remove them from i don't know if they remove them from the ban list or just the community mm. but they remove them from the community so mm. they ostracize them yeah and you're right we're, we're not helping the community by 
sending people away and and not providing the um, the support mm-hmm. needed to address the issues mm-hmm. because they're still using. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. Like for the longest time, my brother, I was saying to you that it's his birthday today if he was still living. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he, you know, I don't drink, but I would invite him to come to my house. Mm-hmm. And I never said to him, if you're drinking, you can't come here. Mm-hmm. I just said to him, you know, come, you can come visit. I invite you to visit. And if you do drink, you know, then just do it quietly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't, don't be a maniac and, and cause disruption. And he wasn't like that anyway. Yeah. But, you know, so I, I ended up having him visit a few times. And a couple of years before his death, we went to New York. Mm. And he had been, he says, tapering. <laughs> which means it, his way of harm reduction yeah. is tapering, but he, he wasn't really sober. You know? So he, he says, well, let's go to New York. And I said, oh, okay. So I, we drove to New York and then we got to the border and the, um, the border, border guy said, show me your ID. So I showed him my, I had my passport. Rossi only had his driver's license. Oh, he had a treaty card, status mm. card. So he showed it to him and I thought, oh, he's not going to get through, you know, I'm hoping. Yeah. Keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> and so the guy says, oh, you're good to go. Oh. And he, he looked at me and he says, I bet you didn't think we'd go. And <laughs> no, he says, I bet you were hoping we wouldn't get through. And yeah. I said, you're right. You know, <laughs> who wants to be driving with somebody that's, you know, topsy-turvy. And yeah. so we went to New York. And he pretty much was was good. You know, he was doing his tapering, so he never went totally crazy. Mm. But towards the last day, I think it was because he knew we were coming home. Like, my worst fear was losing him in New York. Mm-hmm. You know, if he was drunk, and he had over $100,000 in his account. Mm. My worst fear would be he, he w- we would lose him and never see him again. Mm-hmm. New York is huge, right? You don't know what he could get into. Yeah. And he was always talking about his money. Mm-hmm. You know, like all oh, this money, you know, he'd go into a bar and he says, it's on me. Yeah. <laughs> and he always wanted to say that, you know? Yeah. So he he found a little bar close to our hotel. And uh, we would do the tourist stuff in the daytime, just, you know, go visiting museums and doing things. We'd have dinner. After dinner, he'd go off on his own. Then next morning, he'd come back and tell us what kind of shenanigans he's been up to. (laughs) And my son said, oh, we cannot let Uncle Rossi go unsupervised. You know, we have to have a a leash on him. You know, we can't let him just go out there. And towards the end, he was, I think he was losing a little bit of control of his tapering. Mm -hmm. And he was very, very sick on the drive back. Um, but we came back anyway and, and we didn't lose him and he had a good time. It was the best time of his life. He always wanted to go to New York. And so it was just really great for him. And it turned out his bank card, he couldn't use. So we covered everything because he had no access to his money. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's, you know, like it, 
we we treat our own people really bad in our family. One of my sisters kicked him out of her apartment in 40 below, um, almost 50 below weather in, in northern Alberta mm. with no shoes because mm-hmm. he had been drinking. Wow. Like kicked him out the door. Yeah. In his stocking feet. Like to me, there is no excuse for that. There yep. is no excuse for that. And that broke my heart. Mm-hmm. You know, because I always saw him in as much as he had a addiction problem, a drinking problem. I always saw the humanity in him. Mm-hmm. That was never lost on me, that he was a human being. Mm-hmm. And I think with, with some people, they lose the fact of oh, the yeah. humanism in the people, right? Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, that's the problem. Yeah. And I think that really kind of, can, that kind of idea and that belief system can really inform a culture. Like, mm. and we, that can be the culture of the community is that we just have discussed anger or resentment to people who are in active addiction. Yeah. And that hurts us too at the same time. It's almost like the self-destruct um, for us as, as care providers who are taking care of people because we feel that shame and guilt and anger that goes along with that. Mm. But to transform, and so that becomes a barrier in itself too for First Nations communities. But just try to shift that and transform that to get back to you know our indigenous perspective and worldview, which is holistic and inclusive, and just mm-hmm. respecting the dignity, like the human, the humanness of the people that we love and care for, um, mm-hmm. is is the goal. Um, yes, I've been in one community in that was really small and rural and remote. And it was when I had just written and, and created Decolonizing Addiction, um, presented it. And she was an elder who had opened us up in a prayer for that training. And she was, by the end of that training, she was really crying. And I, I thought that I had triggered her uh, just talking about substance use. And so I felt really um, terrible. And so I asked if she kind of wanted to, um, if we wanted to kind of move on from this topic or conversation, or if she wanted to say anything, let me know. And she said, she's like, I'm just so thankful for this presentation because now I feel like I can hug my son and daughter again because her son and daughter were in active substance use, active addiction. And she had that anger and had that resentment and felt like she needed to ostracize them from her family to protect the family. But she's like, Mm -hmm. oh, with this conversation today, I feel like I can hug my son and daughter again. And then I started bawling because I'm like, that is such an emotional transformative movement that changed her life because she felt like she can, I mean, that's painful. I mean, in COVID, we all feel alone and miss people and we miss our hugs. We miss visiting. Um, But to feel that from your own children, because they are known as the active substance users in the community is is torturous, right? Um, So it's that internal work that we need to work on ourselves too, to change our beliefs. Yeah. Oh my God. That's amazing. That's amazing. That, that is so poignant, that part, you know, that, that bit of information, just to know that she was able to hug her, her family again, mm-hmm. without reservation, mm-hmm. you know, and without feeling the shame. Mm-hmm. Because I know mothers with, with um, addicted children are really, their main fear is, I have um, a sister that has sons that are addicted. And Mm. she said her main fear is getting that call Mm. one day that they have been passed because of their addictions. Yeah. 
And nobody understands that grief of a mom that loses their children through addictions, mm. you know, and it's, so that's a powerful moment that you had mm. with that woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really powerful. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much time we have. So as we get close to the end, I, I wanted to ask you, um, just as we, we conclude, include the, uh, and you, and in, and through this discussion, you've answered some of it, but I just want to recap this. So my question to you, Len, is if you were a chief in your community, I know you're a knowledge uh, keeper, traditional knowledge keeper. So that's, that gives you some clout. I, I believe anyway, if you were a chief, and it is in your power to change three things in your community that you believe will make a difference and help people, assist people on their healing journey. Mm. And, and to think outside the box, don't think of any limitation or constraints when you answer me, but just three items that you would do for your community. Mm-hmm. I think the first thing that I would do first and foremost, because I see this in many of the communities that I have the honor and privilege of, of um, going into is create a community wide anti-stigma campaign uh, for all kinds of stigma. I mean, we have, sometimes we're born into stigma because of the color of our skin and because we look indigenous. Um, And so we have stigmas in that regard. We also have stigmas if we have mental health problems and we also have stigmas if we're known to be using substances. And I would like to see, if I was a chief, I would like to see every single community member, every single family talking about stigma and how stigma hurts. Stigma hurts just as much as being abused or beaten or you know, uh, being physically hurt. Um, the yeah. same wiring happens in the brain when we are emotionally hurt. And that science hasn't caught up with us at the community level yet, because of course we get a sense of how toxic lateral violence is, but um, stigma and unaddressed stigma in our communities is so huge. So number one, I would create a community-wide anti-stigma campaign so that the community knows what stigma is, where it comes from, and what every single community member can do about it. Um, secondly, I would balance out and create more room and opportunity for harm reduction programming and services at the community level, because yes. it's been proven time and time again that harm reduction and access to harm reduction programming can save lives. And we are losing community members. We are losing loved ones um, in this crisis. And mm. so amping up our harm reduction efforts at the community level will have a, a drastic effect on, on increasing lives. Um, saving lives, sorry, um, but also improving the quality of life for people who are actively using substances and addiction. Yeah. And then the third thing I think I would do, which is just as equally as important, is that uh, acknowledging trauma piece so that people kind of start to grasp working with their, um, their traumas and their stresses um, and their grief um, at very early on. And ask the community, you know, how do we create a a community and a culture that is very welcoming and supportive and encouraging of doing us our per- of doing our own personal work? Because yeah. sometimes I think that we do it, but we do it on our own uh, yeah. when we're ready, which is good. Yeah. 
But how do we start having family conversations and community conversations about encouraging everybody to access uh, counseling services, to do journaling, to tell their stories, but in a safe and respectful way? Um, Mm -hmm. So that may be the third thing that I would implement if I were to. I really am honored that you took us up. I think people will, as they're listening to this podcast, get so much from it. We've touched on so many areas. Mm-hmm. in this conversation and uh, I think we're almost we could do two or three more of these and yeah. we might maybe do another special one just on trauma <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and no, then no. we'll we'll just kind of see from there where we go but I, yeah. there's so much and I I want to touch on the you know more in in depth the the whole trauma because we're all so traumatized collectively. And in this global pandemic, mm-hmm. we are collectively being traumatized again. Yeah, re-traumatized, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. So and you know, I, I do want to honor and recognize too that I've brought up so many times in, in this conversation our, our traumas and our collective traumas. But I also like to balance that out with our resilience pieces too, because there are so many great things to celebrate that we are so strong, we are so vibrant, we're still here. Yeah. And yes. changing the world as, as fast as we possibly can for the betterment of all of our all, of all people, really. So yeah. I do want, want to honor and recognize our intergenerational resiliency as well. Yes. And it's there. I, I mean, I think Stella and I had a, a little conversation about that just before the call in that, you know, she, she was saying, well, you know, this is a very serious topic. You know, let's not be laughing and having fun. <laughs> you know? And I said, you know, I said, you know, in our, our hometowns, when we have funerals, yeah. we're laughing. Yeah. We're, we're telling stories, we're laughing. We're, and when we pick stories of the deceased, it's always funny stories. <laughs> about, remember that time that person did this, you know? Yeah. And it's always funny and we're laughing and kids are running around. Mm-hmm. So I, I recognize that it is a difficult subject. But you're right, in our resilience, and and one of the things we do as Indigenous people is we put in a little levity into a serious, serious situation. It's not that we don't take it seriously. Mm -hmm. We take it very seriously. Mm -hmm. It's that it helps us expel some of that that energy, Mm -hmm. that energy that's stuck in us because of the seriousness of what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And so by releasing, and that's kind of taking care of trauma too. When you release that energy, you're, you're letting it go. Mm-hmm. It's self-care. Yeah. And so, you know, you're right. We do have resilience and otherwise we wouldn't succeed. My mother had 16 kids. Oh, wow. Like, can you imagine, like, I mean, when you have, have 16 kids, like just imagine if you only had one or two and multiply that by, you know, almost 16, you know, like the worry, right? Yeah. I think about the worry she went through and the difficulty she went through because you're, you, you just want so much good for your children. Like mm-hmm. you, you just want the best safety for them mm-hmm. and you want them to be, you know, well-adjusted and happy adults. Mm-hmm. And so um, I believe that, you know, the reason she survived with with all her children is that the resilience that we inherited from our ancestors mm. that helped get her through, you know, this 
you know, from, you know, like she was born in, in 1919 and lived until, you know, four years ago. So she was 97 when she died. So, but for her to live this long and actually have all her children, raise all her children, none of us were put into care. Mm. So we never were, you know, put into care. We were never taken by foster care. We were never put taken by the 60 scoop. Mm. You know, that in itself is resilience on her part. Yeah. To keep the children together, Mm. you know? So, yeah. Thank you. I think this is really, uh, sorry, Angelina, I I just thought of something here and um, Len made a reference to that earlier about uh, elders, you know, and the lessons and everything that we're taught, we take to heart. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a, a really good conversation, you know, learning from our grandmothers and, you know, just the things that are passed down mm-hmm. that, that we hold on to and, and that works for us, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So women, yes, women, I totally believe in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know it's, I mean, it's amazing. We get so much more wiser as we get older. I mean, that's not amazing. You're supposed to. There's so many stories. My, you know, father, my grandmother told us that back then I paid no attention to. And then, you know, now I'm thinking, oh my God, I should have, what was that story again? You know? Yeah. <laughs> but we we can't have a do-over, but we can do better with our children. Mm-hmm. You know, we can pass on the knowledge to our children mm-hmm. and and emphasize the strengths that we have so mm-hmm. that they feel confident in who they are. Mm-hmm. because, you know, many First Nations Indigenous people feel because of what they experience through residential schools that they feel less than, you know, the Europeans. And so, and and they, the heartbreaking thing is that they weren't less than. They were actually really significantly better than, mm-hmm. you know? So the fact that, you know, so I don't, I don't know, Len, were you ever in residential school? No, I wasn't. No. Um, no nor were my parents, um, but my, all my grandparents were on both oh. sides of my family. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, you have a bit of trauma from them mm-hmm. because of how they, how they experienced it. Mm-hmm. But I was in residential school, but in the later parts, like in the late 60s, well, mm-hmm. early 70s, so I was in residential school. So things had changed by the time I got there. Mm-hmm. You know, my sister was working in the kitchen. And and this is about, I mean, this is a whole nother conversation, but you know, when you talk about decolonization in residential school, like when I was there with people that I knew, and I wrote about it in my blog, that while horrible things were happening, I was totally unaware of them. I didn't Mm -hmm. know these bad things were happening to people. Mm -hmm. And it seems, and I was living there amongst them. Mm -hmm. Like these, you know, other students that experienced this horrible stuff, but I was right there and I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of feel a little bit of... um, 
what do you call that survivor's remorse you know because yeah. you know i don't feel like i don't feel like i was traumatized like they were mm-hmm. by the time i was in residential school even though i'm not cree we learned cree songs the crees were speaking their language the dene were speaking their language because we had you know the father and the nuns knew how to speak dene and they would speak dene language mm-hmm. so i didn't feel that my indigenous identity was being sabotage mm-hmm. you know but others in the same group did feel that so yeah. it's all relative to to what you experience and only you can be experiencing that yeah right yeah absolutely that's why it's a, a journey yeah individual journey that we take mhm um stella do you have anything to add well there's i i do have more questions but i think <laughs> angelina as you said you know it, it could be for another time you know and one of the things i found really fascinating is um the communities like and len i mean you have more knowledge about this uh than i do but one of the things um like i said i find really fascinating is how do you interpret you know decolonization uh harm reduction uh the stigma like how do you um kind of, if if you had like say a bowl and you were able to put all these things in and uh what what would you see um work like what would be um something that we could do right now to start the healing you know like just that whole because as you said you know there we talked about all kinds of stuff you know but uh just at the beginning you know and you've probably seen this through your work and heard and talk to a lot of people but you know like where do we start like you know we talk about decolonization you know there's effects from residential schools and you know there's a whole list of them mm-hmm. but uh just the immediate thing you know to to start on that healing yeah you know so i think um the yeah so i have a lot of questions still yeah and that's such a great question and if i could just briefly you know because there are there's i feel like my spirit's talking to me and and how how i would offer or invite people to start what can we start right away i would say probably the most effective thing that we can do as indigenous peoples is to accept where we are at on our healing journey um and i think acceptance is the first step in working with substances or people who are using substances but it's also on um, the other circle it's very much the first step that we need to do for decolonization work as well we need to accept where we're kind of at um accept our feelings around it forgive ourselves if we feel like we're we're carrying some burden that we haven't addressed um and in decolonial work you know we need to accept that it's a huge lifelong process that uh colonial ideology has taught us that we we want an immediate fix um because we can order skip the dishes we can go through a drive through we can order things on amazon we're a generation that is gratified by instant manifestation we get things really quick 
the decolonial work is not going to happen overnight, nor did it happen overnight. It took hundreds of years for the colonial countries to colonize um, many of the countries around the world. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an intergenerational piece of work as well. And I know that my ancestors did everything that they possibly could to start that conversation and to protect our culture, protect our traditions. And my part today is to accept that I'm going to continue that on. And my children will have to continue that good decolonial work in the future as well. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Oh, my God. Yeah, we could talk on forever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I, I just want to extend to you my, you know, appreciation, like I said, and the honor it is to talk to you because you're very insightful. You're very articulate, like you speak really well, <laughs> not a surprise, but because of the work you do, but you really do speak to, to me at the level that I'm at and you have so much to offer. And I just want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. Mm. Keep locking down those colonial blocks and and breaking through that and uh, doing the work in the community and reaching as many people as possible. I hope that once the uh, this podcast is edited, I will, you know, circulate it and I'll send it back to you and Stella and encourage you guys to circulate it to people you know as well. Mm-hmm. Because you know, this is one way of getting the word out there, particularly in this pandemic where we can't be meeting face to face. This is a good way to get that message out. Um, uh, because I think it's, I, you know, I feel such a resurgence of energy, like there's so much to do. But I feel that there's things that we can do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe just bite by bite. But I feel that we're we're on a level. When I tell people what I've done to this point, they say, what? You did that and that and that? Well, because I'm motivated. I, and I believe that people are open to hearing. And, and I think the pandemic has provided an opportunity to relook at how we do things. Mm. And it's time to think outside the box, get you know, some ideas that, that won't bog us down, Mm-hmm. and push them forward. It's a time of growth, really. That's how I feel anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah that's great. And for me, Len, a big marsicho. Mm. Hi, Chika. Thank you both for having me. I love this conversation. And it's so great to reach across Turtle Island and, and make new, new friends and allies and, and champions of this work. Hi, Chika. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.